So most people who come to Dharma practice who are interested in really learning about this practice and how it can transform their heart come because they're experiencing fear or stress, suffering or loss, or maybe even closer to their own uh, skin. They feel uh, fragile, unstable, or uh, so sensitive that they can't uh, meet the demands of their environment or their family or other people. And so we need some training so that we can learn how to turn towards a suffering, how to work with the habits that arise when we try and turn towards suffering. Because even that move, turning towards suffering, is totally radical for so many of us. I think all of us have had many experiences of doing whatever we can to transcend suffering and to escape our body and to escape uh, relationships when they get difficult and to meet fear with more fear or to try and brace ourselves to get through fear, which never seems to work for very long. So, we need a practice to be able to have realization, but that's not actually the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing is not just to have insight or to have realization or have awakening experiences, but to actually learn how to hold our realization and how to put our realization to work. It's the same way with love. Uh, it's easy to fall in love it's easy to love another person, but it's really hard to hold love in relationship for a long period of time. I always ask idealistic people who say, you know, I also just came from spending a week in California, say, you know, I, I just love everything and I love the world and I'm a bodhisattva or whatever. And then a flag always goes up in my mind thinking, can you love one person? for a really long time. <laughs> and I think it's important to be able to do both these things. And mindfulness practice and practices we're going to explore together are really about learning how to nourish love and nourish friendship, especially to the parts of ourselves that we experience as uh, enemy parts. Everybody has parts that are too painful uh, to be friends with. And everyone in this room, everybody who's watching, also loves people who have parts that they can't be friends with. Some phases of our life, our work is to learn how to befriend difficult aspects of ourselves and some phases of life, it's learning how to support other people who need to do that work. And it's not like you have to do one before the other. Sometimes one notices, at least I notice, that I'm supporting someone else in their healing and realize, oh, actually this is an area I need to heal in also because I've hit my limit of how I can support them. So, 
with uh, meditation practice, with movement practices we're exploring together, we're learning how to have space in our bodies and minds so we can love what moves through us, what we call life that moves through us. And that's one of the reasons you'll notice um, that uh, whenever I start talking or whenever I sit on my cushion, I bow a lot. And I sometimes feel over time that this bowing is a practice of gratitude. And you don't always feel the gratitude, so it's a bit of fake it till you make it sometimes, which is this kind of reminder, not just intellectually, but with your body, to take this posture of actually acknowledging that um, I am devoted to what's actually happening in my life right now. That's this bow. And I'm devoted to what's happening in your life right now. And I'm devoted to what's happening in our collective lives right now. Oh, fear is arising? Okay. And this is called bhakti yoga, which isn't wandering around India in a loincloth, bowing at temples that grow ganja in the backyard. This is a practice of actually being devoted to what's happening in our psychophysical experience. Psychophysical is just secular language for saying the heart. Right? To, to be devoted to what's happening in our hearts moment to moment to moment and also not to hold on to it. And sometimes that's a big opening or a kind of mystical experience and sometimes it's really plain and sometimes it's both at the same time. There's a great story where a monk named Joshu, he was actually a very famous teacher named Joshu. He, um, just to give you an idea, Joshu started teaching when he was 80. And one day he was sitting in the courtyard in his Zen robes with his legs crossed. And a younger student came and sat down next to him and looked over and the first thing this young student saw was, and for the first time, Joshu's ankle, the skin of his ankle. And the student stood up and said, that's it. That's the nature of reality. That's it right there. And Joshu looked at him and said, you've had a very good look at my ankle. That's the story. In other words, he didn't deny it. In that moment, this student saw something that was the nature of reality. So on the one hand, that's it. And that was a big opening for this student. This, imagine you have this teacher that is like so inspiring to you and you see their ankle. It's a really big deal, you know. <laughs> And then at the same time, it's just an ankle. And that's Joshu's response, right? Oh, you've had a really good look at my ankle. So that's the nature of how we're going to practice. We're going to explore the topic of fear, dread, and anxiety. Inspiring, I know. <laughs> and, um, and we're gonna see how on the one hand, 
fear and anxiety might be an epidemic in our culture right now and something really difficult for all of us to work with. And on the other hand, it might be a set of symptoms that are an invitation into a deeper, more profound experience of one's life. And although this might not sound cool, my intention is to help you take your life more seriously. We don't advertise that sometimes because people think, oh, that's such a, I already take my life so seriously. Oh yeah? Let's take it more seriously. And other people's lives more seriously. <laughs> Ecologically, psychologically, physiologically. So, we have a text that we're going to work with, which comes from the Majjhima Nikaya, which are the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And it's one of several descriptions in the Pali Canon of the Buddha's awakening. It's a story about a Brahmin. It's a dialogue where a Brahmin who is upper, upper caste, um, named Janu Soni, comes to the Buddha and asks the Buddha if his students have faith in him. And most people kind of read that and they're like, oh, that sutta doesn't interest me so much. Actually, a lot of teachings are like this, where there's the presenting question, but it's never really the topic of the sutta. And psychotherapy is a lot like this, what's called the presenting symptom where someone comes into psychotherapy thinking they know what they want to explore, but that's never the thing they need to explore. And a lot of yoga texts are like this. Maybe some of you have learned the terms, for example, Mula Bandha and Uddiyana Bandha. Those terms come from a text called the Yoga Taravali, which is a text on the zodiac of yoga. It's a text on astrology. And then right in the center of the text, is this whole teaching about Mula Bandha and Uddiyana Bandha. Because the old yogis knew, like the secret is you, you just put the core teachings inside other teachings, so nobody will find it, unless they're really serious about it. So it's the same thing with this text. So Janu Soni is a Brahmin. He wore all white, he had a white turban, and he had white horses, which would be the equivalent of like a white Bentley. You know, and um, there are three other meetings that precede this teaching where Janu Soni comes to ask the Buddha questions. And interestingly enough, most of the questions are usually around ethics. So picture this, right? Picture this kind of wealthy Brahmin coming every once in a while to see the Buddha to talk about maybe ethical choices uh, he has to make in his life. And another time he comes to ask the Buddha about hell realms and how hell realms operate. So that's kind of the background. In other words, they've gotten into some material. This isn't the first time they've ever met. And um, I'll just start by, by, by just offering kind of a, some flavor here. So the Buddha was living at Savati in Jeddah's Grove. So you, you can picture um, a grove 
that's probably two kilometers from a city. And in this grove, uh, the Buddha and his community are practicing together. And Janusoni comes, it's probably very dramatic with his horses and his Bentley and so on. Um, and when the Buddha was finished speaking, Janusoni sat next to him and said, when your students have gone forth uh, to follow you, do they have you as their leader, their helper, and their guide? Do they follow your example? And the Buddha says, uh, yes, the reason why they have faith in me is because of my example. And I actually think that's a good teaching right there. In other words, they don't have faith because there's a belief system the Buddha is trying to deliver to them through some kind of palatable philosophy, but rather the Buddha in the way that he lives is setting an example that inspires people. And I think all of us know this, right? When you study with someone that's inspiring to you, it usually has to do with how they are more than what they say. If you think of teachers you've spent a lot of time with, you probably can't remember that much in terms of what they've said, but you can feel something about their practice. But that's just the presenting question. Then he asks, Master Gotama, remote jungle thicket resting place in the forest are hard to endure Seclusion is hard to practice, and it's hard to be in solitude. One would think that jungles must rob somebody of their mind. I would say it like this. Jungles must rob someone of their sanity if they have no concentration. And it's unclear here if he means jungles as in the literal jungle, where the Buddha went to practice, or if it's referring to kind of the internal experience of being in a thicket, or whether it's both. I'm assuming it's both. So this teaching comes after the Buddha's experience practicing yoga. So before the Buddha went to a jungle, he had two yoga teachers. Uh, the first one is Alara Kamala. And Alara Kamala taught the Buddha how to meditate on the sphere of nothingness, not to be confused with the emptiness. Nothingness is how to get into a meditative state where you don't experience anything which I think nowadays we might translate as dissociation. And after a while, the Buddha was doing this practice and then started to feel that it wasn't liberative. That even though there was something blissy about it and something relaxing about it, it wasn't actually creating the conditions for freedom. And We've all had this experience. You did your time in rave culture, or maybe you're still doing your time in rave culture. <laughs> um, but whatever, we, we've all had experiences where 
we've used different ingredients to try and experience nothing. And you can. And not only can you experience nothing, you can dwell in nothing for some time, but it's impermanent like everything else. And it doesn't necessarily give you the tools for liberation, for freedom. So the Buddha left and then studied with uh, Udaka Ramaputta, who um, taught him a doctrine that was developed by his father, Rama, um, who taught the doctrine of neither perception nor non-perception, which I'm not going to get into right now. But what this was, was the Buddha saying, okay, I've done rave culture, and now I need to study. And so he goes to kind of a master and says, okay, now give me the teachings. And they study together. And he studies about the perceptual spheres where there's neither perception nor non-perception. And this was a yoga practice the Buddha starts doing, is seeing both non-perception and non-non-perception, if this makes sense. And I think we've all had that too. It's like, okay, I'm done raves. Now I'm going to university. And you go, I'm going to get my life together. And your parents are so happy. Don't worry about the student loan. We're going to support you. We're so happy you're getting a degree. And then you get your PhD. And on the day you're graduating, you realize all of this academic study is not making any of these people in my graduating class, more compassionate, more free, more empathic, more somatically attuned. In fact, a lot of academic work, as we all know, um, can lead to competitiveness and acquisitiveness and so on. So the Buddha doesn't know what to do and has a memory of being a young kid at an agricultural fair with his dad. And his dad is off in the fair. And the Buddha, at the time his name was Gotama, lies down on his back and looks up at the trees and through the trees at the sky and has an experience of peace. Everyone here has had that when you're five years old. Do you remember that? It's probably the experience of peace that brought you here right now, actually. These kind of spiritual experiences we have, these openings we have as kids that we come across all the time. And the Buddha has this memory of being under this tree. And so he goes to a tree and in the forest and that's why he decides to go sit under a tree. That was kind of a long version of the story, but it's a, it's a good story. So the Buddha felt that these yoga practices he, were, he was doing um, was very beneficial, but somehow they were distractions to a more particular project, which is how to confront human suffering. How to actually confront human suffering. And I think anybody who engages in deep inner work has to come to terms, not only with suffering, but the fear of actually confronting one's life, 
the fear of being in the wilderness, of not knowing how to orient a life. 